Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I'm Andrew Pullen, a barrister at Fountain Court Chambers based in our Singapore office. This is the second part of our 360-degree analysis of the disputes regime in Singapore. If you haven't already, do go back and listen to part one, which features two conversations, one with Smita Menon of Wong Partnership about current trends and developments in the jurisdiction, and another about arbitration in Asia with Delphine Ho of the SIAC and arbitrator and Fountain Court door tenant, Professor Ben Hughes. Part two today features another two conversations, this time focusing on litigation and third-party funding. 2015 saw the establishment of the Singapore International Commercial Court, a new division of the Singapore High Court focused on international commercial disputes with an international judiciary and a number of interesting procedural features. In the first of our interviews in this part two of our podcast on Singapore, we get an update on the SICC six years into its operation. For this, I was joined by Lawrence Wong and Eddie Ung. Lawrence Wong is the Senior Director for Business Development for the SICC, responsible for building awareness, engagement and adoption of the Singapore International Commercial Court. Prior to working for the SICC, Lawrence held senior roles in the financial services industry. Eddie Young is the Joint Managing Partner and Co-Head of Disputes at Tan Kok Kwan Partnership, TKQP. Eddie has acted for international clientele in a wide spectrum of corporate and commercial litigation cases, ranging from fields as diverse as banking, telecommunications, hospitality and wealth management. He's also been engaged in some of the most significant cross-border insolvency and restructuring matters in Singapore. And as you'll hear, he brings to the conversation his practical experience of conducting litigation in the SICC. My final conversation was with Avindran Manasegaran of Omni Bridgeway, a leading third-party funder of litigation and arbitration. Arvin is an investment manager based in Omni Bridgeway's Singapore office, responsible for assessing and managing funded cases throughout Asia. Before joining their team, he practiced with international and Singapore law firms in Singapore in both litigation and arbitration. Arvin and I discussed how the market for litigation and arbitration funding in Asia has developed since 2017, when Singapore and Hong Kong passed legislation to legalize third-party funding for arbitration cases. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, I'm joined now by Lawrence Wong from the SICC and Eddie Young from TKQP to talk about the Singapore International Commercial Court, uh, which was established what, about six years ago now in January 2015. Lawrence, can I start with you and just ask you to remind us why it was set up and what the main features of the SICC are? When the Chief Justice mooted the idea of the SICC, actually back in uh, 2013, it was taken with a view that he looked at the situation where there was continued growth of trade, business investment, finance in Asia. And as you know, as these things grow, two things will always happen. You will have an increasing number of disputes happening, cross-border disputes. But more importantly, these disputes become more complex. It's no longer A sells to B and B pays A sum of money. You could have a group of investors behind A and then you have a set of string contracts behind B in that sense. And when that happens, parties demand for effective dispute resolution services. So the question is, could Singapore provide a trusted neutral venue, especially in Asia, with new options for dispute resolution beyond just arbitration in that sense? So that's why the SICC was looked at as one a platform for transnational dispute resolution. 
And as it was set up, it was set up as an alternative to international arbitration where parties look at it. But the key thing is the structure of the court is such that it provides an internationally accepted framework for resolution of such international commercial disputes based on two substantive principles, that of an international commercial law with the aim of helping to enrich and to create a lex mercatoria in that sense. But more importantly, that it is a forum where international best practices are used. And depending on how you want to look at it, we are looking at a court, a common law court in a sense, with procedures that include flexibility, that include different choices for parties to look at. And that's under the the purview of international best practices. For example, in terms of uh, document production, this is a court that does not practice general discovery and you produce the documents you intend to rely on. In terms of rules or evidence, this court, parties can mutually agree to move away from the Singapore Evidence Act and adopt a different set of rules. For example, the IBA rules on taking out evidence in international arbitration. So I'm just giving you a bit of the feel, Andy, of the difference where this court is concerned and why it was set up. Hmm. And in some ways, I mean, the features you're talking about are ones where the court uh, has taken some ideas from arbitration and from other courts around the world and adapted them into a, a kind of an unusual but quite sort of flexible mix of procedures that can be followed. Very much so. And as we did that, it's, as I said, alluded to earlier, it's because of the aim to provide international best practices. And I think for yourself too, Andy, as a very experienced arbitrator, you would find that should you appear before the SICC or when you do appear before the SICC and given your practice as counsel in a sense in arbitration, you will not find yourself unfamiliar with what can be done within the court, right? However, remember that where the structure of the court is, there's two key features of the court that you wouldn't find in arbitration. One is the right of appeal because uh, from any decision of the SICC should parties feel that there's been the facts were not properly applied or the law was the relevant law governing law was not looked at properly they have a right to appeal to the Singapore Court of Appeal but again for SICC matters the Court of Appeal will comprise the international judges that we also have sitting on the Court of Appeal and the other point is the ability to join third and related parties through an order of court so these are the two differences that you will not find within arbitration you mentioned there, Lawrence, the international judges sitting both on appeal and also at first instance. That's that, that's one of the quite unusual features of the SICC. We see it in one or two other places where we have international courts like the DIFC, but it's the, the way in which the SICC has used them is still quite an unusual thing around the world, isn't it? It is. And what we wanted to create with this was so that you would have adjudicators not just from within Singapore itself, but from a wide range. And the 16 international judges that we have currently, are most of them, or almost all of them, are also renowned arbitrators sitting as arbitrators in major cases around the world. As an example of the 16 judges, three of them are past chief justices. We have Beverly McLaughlin, the past chief justice of Canada. We have uh, Robert French, the past... Chief Justice of Australia, and we have Lord Newberger, who was the past president of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, as well as a judge from India, 
one from the US, one from France, where it is still Dominique Harcher, who's still on the court of Carcassonne in France itself. And there's a blend of between of uh, common law judges as well as civil law judges to provide a wider reach on this. Yeah. And looking at things now, six years into the operation of the court, can you tell us a little bit about the case law of the court? How many cases and what the nature of those matters have, have been? We have, until the end of March, a total of, uh, 60, of 69 cases have come before the court itself. We started with only two in the year that we started 2015, but the number has been growing throughout the years, throughout the six years that we've had, which has resulted in 65 written judgments so far, plus another 15 judgments from the Court of Appeal. And these cases have actually involved a total of about 35 nationalities, claims ranging from about 1.2 million Singapore dollars to about 1 billion Singapore dollars. In terms of the nature of the claims, they've been very varied financial, contractual, construction, and also a cryptocurrency matter that we've had. And that's the most interesting one so far in that sense. Before we get into those examples, just um, looking at those 69 cases, um, and you mentioned 35 nationalities, are there particular countries which you see heavily represented in the statistics? For example, a, a lot of the cases coming from around Asia, or are they, is it more global than that? In terms of key markets, yes, we've seen Chinese, Indian, Japanese, South Korean parties in that sense, but also the international nature of it. We've also had parties coming from British Virgin Islands, uh, Mauritius, Saudi Arabia, to name some of the other ones. Of course, there's been American parties involved, but the majority would still be Asian insofar as because these are matters that actually would be taking on disputes that have arisen from a regional basis. So I'm not surprised that it's more Asian tilted yeah, in that yeah. sense. And the numbers of cases that we've seen over the six years, is that broadly in line with where you expected the numbers to be at this stage in the court's life? It is not unexpected, Andy, only because as a new forum, it takes time for parties to actually agree to put the SICC as a jurisdiction. And thereafter, also for any of these contracts, to actually end up in disputes and that the disputes then become litigated. So, yes, it's, it's roughly along the same lines, but we expect the numbers to keep growing and growing exponentially over time. And now, Eddie, if I can turn to you now, you're somebody who's appeared as counsel in the SICC on a case a year or so ago. Can you tell us a little bit about the case in which you appeared and what your experience was? Well, in that case, uh, we're in fact representing a Malaysian bank, Maybank, that's got a Singapore presence in a claim that they were making against Parkley's bank. And this really concerned uh, certain instructions that were being given via SWIFT for Maybank to pay out to a beneficiary in Singapore. Barclays' position was that as a result of you know the potential application of English law, and as a result of the change in terms of the market practice relating to these payments, that uh, Maybank needed to await for the funds to be credited to Maybank's correspondent bank before Maybank could actually pay out to the beneficiary. So Maybank disputed that. And our position was that the moment we received the instruction from Barclays, the instruction is really the SWIFT MT103, we would then be able to pay out immediately. So the matter was being heard by Sir Jeremy Cook, 
Okay, and I must echo what Lawrence has said about SICC in that, you know, the processes were in fact very, very efficient. Let me put it this way. I think uh, Justice Cook was able to focus our minds on what the issues really were. And because he was there attending at every uh, case management conference, every CMC, he was then very, very clear about exactly how the case had evolved. You know, and if there were in fact changes of positions taken by the parties. Now, because there was, in fact, uh, English law that was engaged here, we were very happy to run aside alongside, in fact, a member of your chambers, okay, Mr. Raymond Cox, uh, Queen's Counsel. Anyway, I may call him that. Okay, Ray was, in fact, uh, very, very helpful, not only in terms of the input that he gave on issues of English law, but also because he had written the book on law of bank payments. So he was very well acquainted, okay, with the main issues that before uh, Justice Cook. And as a result, the procedure in the SICC that allows uh, foreign counsel to be able to make submissions, Ray was able to give um, make submissions before Justice Cook, okay, and that took place in a way where he was able to engage Justice Cook on the issues that concern English law and deal with them in a very effective way. So we felt that that procedure was something that gave an edge to the SICC over what it is we will see in our local courts. A local courts, of course, and if there's a foreign law issue, it will mean that uh, you need to call experts on foreign law, and they will then be cross-examined, and they will not be addressing the judge directly. Yeah? And Eddie, if you think kind of more broadly about the experience of the SICC and comparing with that with, say, the, the mainstream high court in Singapore or arbitration in Singapore, what sort of situations would you see clients choosing the SICC uh, in preference to, to those alternatives? Well, I can only see the SICC gaining traction over time. It's got a distinct advantage over uh, arbitration, simply because the ability to pull in parties that haven't agreed to an arbitration agreement. So as a result of which, you know, uh, you can put any number of parties before the SICC and have you know, the dispute fully decided. Again, in terms of you know claims against all these uh, uh, additional parties, that is a clear advantage that SICC has over arbitration. In terms of comparison with our local courts, I think the international judges really bring another dimension to the SICC. They've got international experience. They come from, if you like, different cultures, different traditions. Okay, uh, and sometimes they're able to better understand you know, the Dickens who are before them. They're able to, you know, understand that certain things are done in a different way. And as a result, you know, it gives some weight okay, to what it is that these litigants might be saying. But I do believe that um, at the SICC Symposium, okay, which was held uh, sometime in early March this year, Justice Quintin Lowe, who also sits on the SICC, mentioned that he was being given very important information about how I think uh, a certain Japanese litigant would handle an issue. And he was being told this by his brother judge, who was from Japan. So you're getting a bit of dialogue, really, between the members of the bench and the international judges kind of contributing in that way with bringing in outside information and experience, really. Yes, yes. I certainly see their contribution. On top of the fact that all these are very eminent jurists they were talking about, drawn from you know very uh, prominent uh, jurisdictions, very well-developed legal jurisdictions around the world. And what about the procedural innovations that we have in the SICC? I mean, Lawrence mentioned earlier on, in addition to the influence of 
foreign judges and foreign counsel appearing in and sitting in the cases in the SICC and on appeal. There are a number of procedural innovations that have been built into the rules like flexibility around confidentiality, flexibility around the disclosure regime, provision for three judges to hear cases at first instance rather than a single judge. What, what do you think of those, Eddie? Are those things that are likely to appeal to your clients and other litigators that you know of? Do you think that's going to draw people into using the SICC? Very much so, because it gives, I think, the parties the ability to be able to configure the hearing, the way they see it, uh, the, how it is they see that it should take place. So, uh, for example, if uh, parties were to agree on something akin to the IBA rules on taking evidence applying, it will simply mean that you know there would be actually less discovery that's being given by the parties. And as a result of which, we cut down on the amount of information and material that's put before court. And really, sometimes when that happens, it really focuses the minds of the parties on what is at stake and what is in issue. And Lawrence, talking about some of those procedural innovations that have been built into the rules, how often are you seeing parties take them up and use some of those different features? A lot of the time, actually, Andy. For example, one example, uh, on the very first matter that the SICC heard, there was an application for the courtroom to be cleared and for records to be sealed on one part of it which talked about pricing mechanisms in a contract. That's because it was business sensitive. So the judges agreed to allow that application and the records were sealed so that the defendants actually protected their business interests in that sense to not make public how they had priced certain parts of their contracts. So that's one example of that. We've also had applications for or parties will come back to say that they were quite pleased with the fact that you moved away from general discovery, as Eddie has mentioned earlier. And the third one would actually deal with this. Since November 2019, the SICC has been hearing matters relating to applications under the International Arbitration Act for arbitration that was seated in Singapore. So on that matter, you would see that the costs awarded to the successful party is different from how it is handled by the Singapore High Court, where costs have been awarded on what's deemed to be a reasonable basis, rather than if you were to go through the High Court, it would have been under Appendix G, in that sense, which which was more prescriptive in terms of the maximum costs that were allowed. So these are the differences that parties have actually seen in terms of the flexibility and the different rules that we've had. I mean, that, that cost point that you raise at just there, Lawrence, that's quite interesting because the Singapore courts, although they generally have a loser-pays approach, it's a relatively limited amount of recovery, certainly compared with, say, the English courts. And I think the the SICC potentially gives a greater degree of recovery, doesn't it, to a, a winning party because of the difference rule in the rules? Generally, yes, Andy. And that has come through in certain judgments I've already had. And if four parties wish to look through it, just go through the SIC website and you see the judgments under, as usual, your redacted party names, you would find that some of them relate to costs and you could just see the reasoning that goes behind it. And it's... That's right. If you look at the list of judgments, you can always spot the arbitration ones quite quickly because they're all uh, lists of letters rather than names, aren't they? Exactly, which also, which also makes it very hard to remember after a while. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that 
is something that the law was clarified to make clear that that could be done, as Lauren says, about a year or so ago. And we're now starting to see a number of cases on the International Arbitration Act being heard in the SICC. Is that something you think that clients are taking any notice of at this stage? Well, I think that my view is that I think arbitration still remains very complementary compared to uh, the SICC. And, you know, you have to remember that uh, an arbitration, of course, your arbitral awards can be enforced through the New York Convention. And you have, I believe, about 160 signatory countries to that. And therefore, your ability to enforce in you know, many, many countries around the world is a clear advantage of arbitration. And although the SICC has, I think, uh, been able to put uh, in place you know, a lot of uh, protocols that would allow its judgments to be enforced uh, in places that you don't ordinarily expect, okay, like China, okay, at the end of the day, there is still something to be said, okay, about the fact that arbitral reports can be enforced through a New York Convention. And so that still remains the, the key advantage of arbitration in, in this part of the world then, in your, in your view? Well, there's also the further advantage, of course, that parties get to choose the arbitrator that they like. Yeah, somebody that they feel might be might have you know the the right sort of experience for the matter that they want heard. What about choosing the SICC as the supervisory court where you have a seat of arbitration in Singapore? Is that something where either the arbitration council or or their clients are going to see that as having advantages, or do you think that decision making is largely going to be simply where is the seat going to be and then see what happens after the arbitration commences? Well, simply because the SICC judges also arbitrators, they would, I think, be very alive to you know, issues that might arise out of arbitration. Because of that, there could be perhaps a very slight advantage in having the SICC perform the role of a supervisory court you know, over matters arising from arbitration. But having said that, I don't think that, you know, the local bench is in any way less able to handle any of these, these disputes. So any of these matters that come before it. So I don't think that there's a significant advantage in having SICC do that. Okay. And Lawrence, Eddie touched on enforcement and, uh, and the New York Convention in the context of arbitration. Singapore, of course, has signed up to the Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements, which provides for a, a framework for enforcing judgments. That's still very early days at the moment. As that perhaps gains more acceptance around the world, that might uh, provide a, a useful framework for enforcing SICC judgments. But, but I mean, at the moment, where do you things stand, and what what's your, the experience been of enforcing judgments outside Singapore? Here's here's an interesting point, Andy. It's, is it truly that's not easy to enforce the money judgment of the SICC or, or of any other court, superior court, with another court from another jurisdiction? Or is it more a perception? Because if you think about it, before even the New York Convention came about, courts were recognizing money judgments from courts of other for jurisdictions before that. It's enforcement by summary proceedings, if you think about it where if you talk about a common law court, a common law court will look at four factors before deciding or four objections before deciding whether to recognize and enforce a money judgment. First is whether the court issuing the judgment had competent authority. Second, 
was any fraud involved in deriving that junction, that judgment? Third, was the judgment debtor denied natural justice or due process? And lastly, is it against the public policy of the country where the court is considering that? If not, then you don't have any defense against the court recognizing enforcing that money judgment. For civil law courts or civil law jurisdictions, the question of reciprocity, where if I were to enforce, if I were to consider enforcing, recognizing enforcing judgment from your jurisdiction, would you recognize and enforce judgment from mine? So against this, there are very few jurisdictions in the world that actually do not recognize foreign judgments. So it is really not an issue. I mean, I'll give you three examples of, say, civil law jurisdictions where Money judgments from a Singapore court has been enforced, and of course the SICC would fall within that umbrella. One would be in China, where we've had two courts actually having recognized and enforced a Singapore money judgment. A second one would have been Japan, where the Tokyo District Court back in 2006 actually recognized and enforced the judgment of Singapore courts. And the third one, most recently in 2016, was for Vietnam itself, where the People's Court of Ho Chi Minh City actually recognized and enforced the Singapore money judgment and it was even upheld by the Court of Appeal when the judgment debtor brought it up on appeal. So, as an example, do you really need the a treaty or a convention to enforce money judgments on that? And notwithstanding that long-winded response to your question, Andy, the Hague Convention obviously does help and I would see that the Hague itself is still trying to push it through other jurisdictions. We've had the US and China who have signed it for, I think it's about three to four years now, but they have yet to ratify it. But nonetheless, as I've said, we have no issues enforcing in China. We have no issues enforcing the SIC judgments in the US anyway, because they are all common law courts. And also at the same time, we have some treaties. Singapore has some treaties with major jurisdictions, for example, the United Kingdom with uh, India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Australia, New Zealand. These are major countries that we have. And of course, with Hong Kong SAR itself. So enforcement of judgments should not be a major issue. But in the interest of full disclosure, I would say that we would still have issues with Indonesia where they still follow the old Dutch code and as such, foreign judgments are not recognized in Indonesia. And with Thailand being within the Asian ASEAN umbrella, because uh, Thailand would still insist that you have to relitigate the dispute over there. So yes, for these two jurisdictions, arbitration would still be the preferred way forward. But of course, having said that, practitioners like Eddie and yourself would also know that if the judgment debtor had assets anywhere else in the world, especially in Singapore or in Europe, there would be no issues with enforcement against within those jurisdictions, but not in their home countries. And just to finish up, perhaps we can look forward a little bit and I can ask each of you in turn what you think is likely to be the future of the SICC in the next five or six years. Are there things that you would like to see, Eddie, that the SICC should do in terms of new developments, uh, new kinds of work or further changes that might be made to the rules to make uh, the process work even better? Well, one very interesting new direction. I would say very exciting new direction. Uh, that was announced by the Chief Justice at the SICC Symposium that I spoke of was that uh, cross-border insolvency disputes might be heard by the SICC. I can see a lot of advantages okay, in doing that. 
simply because, you know, if you're talking about cooperation between courts of different jurisdictions, the fact that you have an international panel of judges who understand the legal traditions of, you know, courts elsewhere, they would certainly be able to bring together, you know, common protocols, common ideas in terms of being able to handle the cross-border insolvency. So there are significant advantages to having the SICC handle this type of cross-border insolvency disputes, which can only be, okay, something that will grow in the future. I can see immediate synergies between that and something that the Singapore courts have really put out. This is the judicial insolvency network. And how that network works is that you will see the Singapore courts actually communicating in the courts of a different jurisdiction and perhaps even having common hearings with the court of that other jurisdiction to be able to handle cross-border insolvencies that have got elements in both jurisdictions. Now, if you were to put that together with the SICC and have the SICC judges actually handle that hearing together with perhaps you know a local judge, that I think has got immediate benefits simply because of the ability to communicate, ability to be able to understand what's happening in this other jurisdiction they were talking about. Interesting. And Lawrence, from your perspective, what do you see coming up in the future for the SICC? If I were to refer back to that same symposium Eddie was just talking about earlier, it's also been announced that the SICC is revising its own rules of court. And with that development that we're having, you now have the potential of having different tracks for dispute resolution to be decided by the judge in consultation with parties. For example, we are looking at actually a pure memorials track for dispute resolution. And that would help actually think about it in terms of time and cost to facilitate adjudication in that sense. And the Chief Justice has already mentioned that the court is looking at the setting up of a construction list to help matters, especially because if you think about it, construction matters have truly become really complex and involve lots of many parties, involve uh, lots of documentation that happens. And it's a question of how we could actually help facilitate and bring parties together. So these are the sort of developments within the next five or six years that you're talking about. And with that, it would be more clarity, I would say, for parties to consider which method of dispute resolution they want to embark upon. Having said this, I'm not saying that it's a competition. But truly, it is providing options to parties as to which method of dispute resolution would be more suitable for certain disputes or certain types of contracts, even at time of contract stage rather than post-dispute. And of course, an overarching one, I would still put in my pitch for Singapore, and in the sense is that we would always still encourage parties to move towards mediation first rather than having to go through the whole hog of either arbitration or litigation, because that one would actually help parties put aside their differences and preserve business interests. I think that's my final word on that. Well, thank you both for that. That's really interesting overview of what's been happening in the SICC, and I think some interesting developments to keep an eye on in the future. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Now, welcome to Arvind from Omni Bridgeway to talk about how the third-party funding market has developed. 
Back in 2017, both Singapore and Hong Kong passed legislation to liberalise the rules and specifically allow the use of funding of arbitration cases. Can you tell me what's been the practical effect of that legislation and how has the market developed since 2017 when it came in? Sure, Andy. I I think from where we are sitting, the market has really boomed. We're seeing an exponential growth. Just to give you a sense of that, as at 2020, Omni Bridgeway's entire estimated portfolio value was um, $16 billion dollars. And Asian cases represent about 10% of that portfolio. And this is, you know, just compared to around four years ago when we started the Asian business. So if you sort of step back and think about it, that's really quite eye-watering because, as you mentioned, the legislation was only introduced to legalize the funding of claims about four, five years ago. I mean, when I was in practice, it was certainly not permissible. So... I think what it just goes to show is that there is a serious demand for the type of financing that we provide as well as the other services that we offer. Uh, I think that corporate clients as well as their legal advisors are really beginning to appreciate the benefits of utilizing non-recourse finance to leverage the value of their complex commercial claims and to also manage risk. And with that level of growth, how often are you receiving claims is this is your portfolio made up of lots of claims or is it a relatively smaller number of very big claims that tend to feature in this part of the world well that's a good question i dare say that it's a a mix of both i know that in other parts of the world there is perhaps an inclination by some of our peers toward uh, looking more exclusively at the larger ticket claims, uh, big ticket items. In Asia, it's not really the case that we find a lot of those very high value claims, but there are such claims out there. And I'm happy to say that uh, we're at the forefront of funding some of those very large, substantial claims. Having said that, of course, there are claims which are more modest, which we look at, whether on a standalone basis or whether wrapped up in a portfolio. Just to give you a sense of the number of sort applications that we get, again, with reference to uh, 2020, we received a record number of applications of around 1,300 globally, and that represented a more than 30% increase uh, compared to 2019. And if you look at Asia, we had 120 funding applications Uh, And that roughly works out to about 10 applications every month. And I think that's really attributable to our leading market reputation as well as business development efforts, which are generating these opportunities and also a generally increasing awareness of disputes finance, as I mentioned before. And when you get the applications coming in, is there a very high conversion rate into active funding opportunities and into live cases? Well, we have a very rigorous underwriting process. So that translates into about, say, a 3 to 5% conversion rate. So today we are funding and actively managing around 15 cases. So that sort of gives you a sense of the conversion rate. 
and I'm happy to report that at least two to three of them are nearing completion within the next few months, if not weeks. You're sitting here in Singapore, but your practice is no doubt looking at Asia as a whole. Whereabouts within Asia are you seeing the cases coming from? Well, that's a very interesting question, Andy. I, I would say that a large number of applications emanate from India. And, and, and I'm happy to sort of go into a bit of detail why that is the case. We're also seeing um, some opportunities come out of Indonesia. But principally, I think that a lot of the opportunities derived out of Singapore and Hong Kong uh, they're both, as you say, sort of the regional arbitration hubs. So there tends to be uh, some connection with either of these jurisdictions. Uh, and it may very well be that, you know, it is uh, a choice of law or, you know, choice of seat. Uh, and then that is maybe as far as the connection goes, it's not necessarily the case that they are Singaporean parties or parties in Hong Kong. But if you're talking about jurisdictions, um, parties, uh, you're really looking at, I think, India, some parties from Indonesia, um, certainly from from China. There's a lot of interest there. So I think we're seeing a number of opportunities in, in from these sort of um, countries. Again, I think it's a function of trying to educate the broader market. And by market, I don't mean just us sitting in Singapore, but Asia more generally about what we do. And, you know, nat naturally, each jurisdiction has its own unique ways of dealing with third-party funding. There are certain jurisdictions uh, in which it is still expressly not allowed. Malaysia comes to mind. But nevertheless, we, we are seeing opportunities out of Malaysia. And, you know, not necessarily in the domestic litigation space, but, you know, in the international arbitration space, we're also considering an opportunity arising out of an insolvency with a Malaysian connection. So I think it's it's just very interesting for us because we've got to then think of novel and creative ways as to how we want to fund these sort of disputes because the claims are meritorious and the clients need the, the funding to prosecute these claims. So we're increasingly trying to think of, of creative ways, creative structures to try to, to bring our financing to bear. And so that's a, that's a question of finding a way to structure it in order to work with the legal framework in different parts of the region then, I guess. That's right, yeah. It's, it's, partly a, it's certainly partly a structuring issue. And of course, the other interesting thing that one needs to contend with is where, you know, there may be an enforcement issue. So when you're looking at opportunities in this region, one needs to be quite alive to um, where you're going to ultimately end up enforcing your, your reward. So just using Indonesia again as an illustration, you are going to find some challenges enforcing awards in Indonesia because of you know the, the local ecosystem. But even so, we're, we're getting more comfortable there and we are actually looking at, with the assistance of Indonesian Council, an enforcement case there. So it, it injects yet another level of complexity to the, the due diligence process and the risk analysis from our perspective, but it also makes it very exciting in terms of the opportunities because you're sort of incrementally looking at each of these markets and trying to find ways and means to get comfortable around that. And, and I dare say that 
we're truly at the forefront of that process and very excited to be part of that. And you mentioned there uh, an enforcement case and without going into the specifics of that case, are, are you saying specific enforcement cases as a particular uh, line of business, if you like, as opposed to dealing with the substantive disputes? Uh, yeah, so that's a good question. You know, let me just sort of set the, the stage a bit. Back in November 2019, early 2020, we completed a merger with then the legacy Omni Bridgeway. Uh, we were previously known as IMF Bentham. And, and, and that merger, uh, and we're now globally known as Omni Bridgeway, that merger really uh, brings to play a unique capability in terms of enforcement of awards and judgments. And and yes, we look at it as a potentially, well, not potentially, but a, a discrete business line. So we are getting inquiries from corporates, from law firms, whose clients already have obtained awards or judgments, but find it challenging uh, or difficult to um, enforce these awards. And so just backing up a little bit, you mentioned Indonesia there, but uh, you also talked about in India as a particular source of uh, disputes that and, and clients that are coming to you for uh, assistance. W what is it you think about India, if anything, that's led to this uh, level of interest from there? Well, several things. To start with, you know, the high levels of inbound and outbound investment in India. I think that necessarily means that there will be an upward trend of parties getting into disputes, whether or not it is international arbitration or domestic arbitration or indeed domestic litigation. So that's one aspect of it. The second aspect of it is that you have Indian businesses which are now more you know, um, international in nature. So they've got operation and customers abroad and they tend to find themselves running into trouble sometimes. And this isn't just confined to Indian corporates. Um, we were also looking at an interesting space involving resolution professionals handling and managing insolvent estates. We're also considering how we can work with Indian financial institutions. So there are a number of uh, reasons as to why there are increasing opportunities in India. One other point to add also is that it is often thought by international actors that, uh, you know, the Indian legal system is notoriously slow. And, and perhaps that there's some element of, of truth to that if you get sucked into the Indian court process. But uh, one needs to also applaud the changes in the legal framework in India, where, for example, you know, you can actually get an award enforced and recognized and that process is much shorter than what it used to be in the past and this is really a function of the changes in their arbitration legislation coupled with you know this judicial attitude towards promoting arbitration and so from an investor's perspective that's encouraging because then your historical risk by historical i mean pre these amendments of being stuck in the jurisdiction for i don't know eight years ten years or whatever it may be we've heard those sort of stories you're now looking at the times being halved you know you're looking at possibly getting an outcome in three years 
So that's certainly, you know, an, another development which is encouraging and, and the reason why we look at these opportunities with greater interest. So those are some of the reasons, Andy, I would say that the cause number of these claims to arise. Yeah. And I mean, some of the things that you're talking about there, obviously, some of them are related specifically to arbitration, which is what the the legislation, both in Singapore and Hong Kong, were focused on. But some of it sounds to me like it's moving in some places, at least into types of litigation or other sorts of dispute. Is that right? And are you seeing that happening in Singapore, uh, despite the limitations of the legislation that was passed in 2017? Yeah, well, that's it's an interesting way that you frame that question, Andy, to say that there are limitations in the Act or in the legislation. Well, to start with, yes, we are seeing an increase in terms of opportunities arising out of Singapore litigation. But to just deal with the point hit on as to what the legislation actually provides for, it makes expressly clear that you can fund international arbitration and court proceedings associated with that arbitration. But, you know, it doesn't say that you can't fund litigation in court. So the touchstone really is looking at the case law, which arises out of the insolvency context. And think by now people have heard about the Ray Vanguard decisions and the two other decisions that followed that. Ultimately, the touchstone is whether the administration of justice will be affected. And that's really a question of policy. So the concern from the court's perspective and from the government's perspective is, you know, the protection of vulnerable litigants and and to really avoid an abuse of process where, for example, frivolous or vexatious claims are brought with the assistance of third-party funding. And I'll just make two points in, in response to that. As to the first point, A core part of our business ethos is access to justice. And that's amply demonstrated by some of the cases we fund where, but for our involvement, the claims wouldn't have even gotten off the ground. And, you know, not only that, but if you think about it, you know, it allows for a certain equality of arms. And I personally find that, you know, getting involved in those cases and funding those cases can can be really fulfilling. As to the second point, for a sophisticated funder such as ourselves, it's just not in our interests to fund a frivolous claim where, for example, the damages are inflated. And the reason for that, as you will be aware, is not only because of the potential loss of our invested capital, but because of the adverse costs exposure in jurisdictions such as Singapore. And I think that's an ample deterrent against backing unmeritorious claims because I don't think we can justify that to our investors, you know, taking on that kind of those sort of losses if we are just backing frivolous claims. And to round that off, just as a demonstration or illustration of how, in a sense, we are committed to our belief, uh, we are funding uh, Singapore High Court litigation, and it's shall I say, the classic David and Goliath situation where the claimant is truly an impecunious litigant. And and it's only because of our funding that we've managed to get the case started and to progress it in the way that it has. So we're obviously watching the space with a lot of interest and we'd be very happy to to work with the relevant stakeholders in the future to, to you know make sure that this area is clarified and, and made expressly permissible, perhaps.
And is it sort of mainstream commercial litigation or is it more insolvency or other particular areas of litigation where you would expect funding to develop in Singapore? Yeah, no, that's a good question also because it's something that I've been discussing with my colleagues. I think one needs to be quite careful and nuanced when one says, you know, we can fund Singapore litigation. And thank you for allowing me that opportunity to <laughs> clarify my, my position. Because as you say, it's a very clear cut case in insolvency, right? I think the law is trite now that it's allowed. And, you know, there's been developments in the um, ERDA legislation, which, you know, expands the scope of liquidators' powers of sale and so on. We can perhaps discuss that a bit later. But in terms of your, shall we call it sort of commercial cases, the run-of-the-mill type of cases, I, I still think that it, it would be helpful to demonstrate some sort of an ac access to justice angle. I don't think it's, it's compulsory. But, you know, I think that, you know, it would be good to be able to demonstrate that it's a case where there's an access to justice angle, uh, that public policy wouldn't be offended, that you're really trying to assist a vulnerable and impecunious litigant to prosecute a good claim. And there's, I don't think there's a reason why um, that should not be encouraged. And Erda, just for those who may not be so familiar with it, that's the Insolvency Restructuring and Dissolution Act in that was passed in 2018, which was a quite a major reformulation of the of the insolvency law, a restatement of the insolvency law here in Singapore, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was a an overhaul and an attempt at an omnibus legislation, which I, I think has achieved uh, a number of the objectives that it set out to achieve. From our perspective, it's certainly very welcome because it makes it easier for liquidators and judicial managers to obtain disputes, financing in a broader range of insolvency-related claims. So liquidators can now enter into funding arrangements in respect of claims for wrongful trading, unfair preferences, transactions at undervalue, and so on, where uh, it was they couldn't in the past because they were confined to the, the liquidators' powers. And in fact, if you look at the case law pre-IRDA, um, that was one of the, the observations of a high court judge. So, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very welcome because that means that it opens up opportunities for us. And it also means that a number of these companies can now avail themselves of the funding in order to, to try and find ways to monetize potential claims like the ones I have described. And so then stepping back again from those sort of developments, but and looking back at the arbitration sector, which has been the mainstream, if you like, of third-party funding in Singapore. Can you tell us a little bit about how that has developed and is that being used in the David and Goliath situations or is it being used more as a tool for kind of managing corporate balance sheets or is it a bit of a mixture? I think that, you know, it might have started out that way as a sort of the classic impecunious litigant taking on big corporates and we certainly see that theme fairly consistently. But increasingly, we are seeing, as you've observed, sophisticated corporate clients who are well-heeled and, and quite able to fund arbitrations or disputes themselves. But appreciating how the type of financing that we offer, because it is on a non-recourse basis, a number of advantages, right? They see that the risk is passed to the funder 
in the in where a funder like ourselves is prepared to fund it entirely. They see the benefit from a balance sheet perspective because the legal expenses that they may incur is no longer a drag on their profit and loss. They see the benefit of unlocking value in their contingent claims. So, you know, they're slowly sort of, you know, um, catching on to some of these concepts and exploring with us how they can use our type of funding to pursue claims. So, again, just by way of example, uh, my colleague and I are working up uh, an arbitration involving a joint venture company in Indonesia, but against an international third party. And that's an interesting dispute because oftentimes we think of suing Indonesian parties, but this is the opposite. <laughs> so it's an interesting one. It's a, it's a sort of projects infrastructure type dispute. And there it, it is a co-funded opportunity. So you have the client who's actually able to, to pay the legal fees, but now they said, well, let's share the risk with the funder. And then, you know, there are certain things that follow from there. You know, you, you can adjust the returns that the funder expects because you're sharing risk and so on. So I think that's quite an interesting way that the users are, are looking at the funding. You know, instead of, for example, looking at all the risks being passed on to the funder, they look at ways to, to say, share it 50-50. So that's one interesting way it's developed. The other thing that corporates are also catching on to is and I think we alluded to this a bit earlier when you asked me about the, the sizes of the claims that we look at, right? So Omni Bridgeway looks at arbitration claims north of US $10 million. Anything less is a difficult proposition for us. Just, you know, from, from the perspective of investing time and resources working up such a case, it, it just makes more sense for us to look at something uh, meatier. And the, the qualification to that is this. If a company has smaller claims that would, on a standalone basis, not lend themselves to being funded. Companies can package them as a portfolio. So you put them together in a portfolio, and if we are prepared to fund it on that basis, then that allows the companies to bring these claims to the front and actually monetize those claims where otherwise they'd be left lying on the table. So again, by way of illustration, I'm managing a portfolio comprising two arbitrations both different seats, both different sets of governing rules. But the larger claim is something in the region of about 13 to $15 million. And the smaller claim is for about a million dollars. And we wouldn't have funded the smaller claim on its own. But I'm happy to say that because it was packaged as a portfolio, the clients were able to use our funding to pursue the smaller arbitration successfully and managed to get an award. Of course, the next challenge is getting that enforced uh, and recognized and, and, and monetizing it. But that's part of the process, isn't it, Andy? So just, just to give you an, an illustration of, of the types of opportunities and, and how they've resulted in different types of funding arrangements, the portfolio type arrangement, the co-funding arrangement. So, you know, it's, it's really interesting to see these sort of developments. I mean, that's quite interesting. As you say, the use of portfolios, I mean, that, that's something that's developed in other parts of the world where third-party funding has been around for, for longer. It's quite interesting that it's now happening here in Asia and you're seeing that. I mean, do you think that now, sort of four or so years on from the big change in Singapore and Hong Kong, there's the major arbitration centers, that the market is now 
a similar level of sophistication to what you would see perhaps in Australia where your firm originated or the States or Europe? Well, I, I think not yet, to be completely candid. Those markets, I mean, if you look at the, the, the legacy IMF Bentham, it was in business for 20 over years. The legacy Omni Bridgeway, even longer than that. You know, so I think it's still early days for Asia, Singapore particularly. But what is encouraging is the upward trajectory that, you know, we see. I gave you some numbers earlier to illustrate that. I mean, it's just... It, when you sit back and think about it, it's really quite staggering the number of applications that we receive, and you know the the other the other sort of thing to in, an indicator of growth is how we've grown as an organization. You know, it we started with you know my colleague Tom Glasgow, whom you know, uh, who's our chief investment officer for Asia, and and he was one man on the ground four years plus ago who started the office here to oversee the Asian business and operations. And then I joined him about two years later. And today, we're a, we're an eight-member team, you know. And, and that's, uh, that's a function of just the sheer volume of applications that we have to look at and process. And, uh, you know, also the marketing efforts that we have to engage in and the education piece that we need to do to push out the message, which we're obviously big believers in. So that's also another indicator of growth. It's still early days, Andy, I think. And that's why we're really excited to see um, how the industry develops. I mean, as you said, Singapore is an international arbitration hub and will continue to be so. Hong Kong has always been there. You know, obviously, there are certain troubling developments there and, and political, social front, whatever you want to call it. But but it's 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 going to still be be one of the shining stars, right? You know, so collectively, you know, I, I, I think that there's a huge headroom and a lot of room to, to really grow. And I think one day, you know, we will be as mature a market as Australia or the US. You know, the, the legal systems change, right? I mean, for example, in Singapore, uh, again, when I was in practice, there was this uh, idea of contingency fee arrangements. It's a complete no-go, Right. And then now if you look at leading jurisdictions like London, you have uh, damages-based agreements. You have these sort of arrangements which give lawyers more flexibility and clients more flexibility. And I think that we are moving slowly but surely in that direction. And from our perspective, I think some of these changes are welcome. But as, as always, it needs to be incremental. It won't happen overnight. And before we finish, it, probably no discussion at the moment can go without mentioning what's happened in the last 12 months. Uh, how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected your business and the funding market? Yeah. So when it first struck, obviously, the best thing about it was to be able to work from home and wear whatever I liked. But, you know, jokes aside, from a commercial angle, it was obviously a shock to the system for, for everybody. And, and naturally, the businesses that we support were shaken and needed some time to find their footing. But very quickly, we found an increasing interest in what we did. Because, you know, now what is the biggest issue for businesses as a result of COVID? Liquidity. And we are able to offer that liquidity in circumstances or in situations where a traditional lender will not be able to, 
Why? Because we are the only people who have that specialized knowledge as to how to look at a dispute as an asset and to, you know, advance monies to a business against that dispute. Um, so it's a really revolutionary way of thinking about financing and how a business can actually access liquidity because it may not be able to do it through traditional means. I mean, there's some talk about, you know, a lot of liquidity in the market and so on and so forth. But when it comes to this discrete asset class uh, being disputes, you know, third-party funders, disputes funders like ourselves are really the only people in town who know how to look at it, assess it, and extend that sort of liquidity. So it's two parts to that, right? The first part is, you know, depending on the size of the claim and how much we can extend, part of the monies that we advance can be used for, towards the business's working capital needs and for the business to basically stay afloat and be a going concern. And, and indeed, in, in, in one of our cases, that's precisely what is happening, right? We started this dispute about, was it about three years ago? And we advanced a, a fairly substantial working capital advance for the business. And that's helped it to stay on its feet even after this change in events as a result of COVID. And then the other part of the funding package is the money that you would use to pay your legal fees and associated fees in order to advance, prosecute your claim with a view ultimately to monetizing that and, and getting that value that may be usually left on the table. So it's two-pronged, right? You get something in front by way of a capital advance to keep your business afloat. And you look to monetizing your disputes and realizing that in cash down the road, you know, be it one year, two years, three years, right? So that, that I think is, is my sort of reflection on, on the COVID situation. So in a nutshell, I guess what I describe it as our business is, is like yours, Andy, you know, lawyers and uh, legal advisors. It tends to be counter-cyclic, right? Especially in the disputes world. When things are, are going well, people tend not to sue each other. It's quite the opposite in this climate. And, and so, the you know, for people to avail themselves of, of experts like yourself, they will need the wherewithal. And that's where we, I think, come in to, to assist them to get really the best quality counsel, you know, and the best quality legal advisors like the people at Fountain Court, like yourself, whom we've worked with. And, and that's really exciting because we get to be able to facilitate that and to see the entire process play out, right? And, and, and for the clients to, to get the best advisors, to put together a good team, to advance the best case that they can. And, and I think that's just one of the parts of the, my job that I, that I really enjoy. Thanks, Alvin. That's really interesting. And to hear particularly how the market is changing as a result of COVID-19 and the, again, another sophisticated use of third-party funding if people are using it to help keep their businesses afloat and not just to finance claims. Yes, that's right. Like I said, you know, that the sky's the limit really for the, in, for the industry as a whole. Good. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Andy. In this episode, we've heard of positive progress reports on two significant reforms to dispute resolution from the last several years. Third-party funding now seems firmly established for arbitration and extending into commercial litigation. As Asia becomes ever more important to the global economy, commercial disputes with an Asian connection similarly grow in number and importance, and it seems likely that the SICC will be one of the beneficiaries of this. I'm very grateful to all our panellists for taking the time to join me, so thanks again. 
to Lawrence Wong, Eddie Young and Avindran Manasegaran. I hope you enjoyed the discussion and that you'll join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fams in Court podcast. Thank you.